So don't try to be something that you're not. Don't. Too many brands try to be Nike or they try to be Apple. No other brands are Nike or Apple. And use that as to your advantage. But make sure that when you're telling stories and whether it's an Instagram post or it's a press release, whatever it is, that you are conveying a message about your brand that has real meaning that makes you unique. And so I can't tell any brand how they should be unique because that's up to them to figure it out. But I think that's very, very important. This is the CMO and Joe podcast. We interview today's most inspiring chief marketing officers and savvy marketers of lucrative direct-to-consumer e-commerce companies, bringing you insightful stories and tips on marketing, sales, branding, and much more. We bring you the best lessons from the best. Let's get started with your host, Joe Momo. And we are live. Welcome to the podcast, Romney. Thanks a lot, Joe. really appreciate it. Well, I'm super excited to have you on the podcast. Um, obviously, you're the CEO of Edso Rings. Um, I actually got familiar with them uh, actually on Shark Tank uh, with Aaron and Brighton. But uh, before we jump into all of that, how about you give us a little backstory who uh, who Romney is and what you're currently up to? Yeah, you bet. Uh, it's a real pleasure to to be a part of this. So I appreciate it. So, like everyone's story, it's interesting and. Um, I think one thing that was very formative about me was I was born in Salt Lake City, Utah. But by the time I graduated from college, I had changed schools 11 times uh, based on various moves uh, in Utah. And also my family lived in Italy, uh, Sicily and Rome when I was in high school. So from an early age, I learned I had to learn to be comfortable outside my comfort zone uh, to embrace constant change. And I became fascinated by different people, what makes them tick, different cultures, love of travel. Um, so that was a really big, it was very formative for me, uh, grew up in a pretty big family. I have, uh, so five kids and, um, my dad does international law. So we had the opportunity to be exposed to people from all around the world, a lot of different cultures. Um, my first love actually was baseball. Uh, I, something magical happened when I put a mitt on and threw catch, played catch with a friend in my backyard. I, it was just magical. So unfortunately my my big dream as a kid to be a shortstop for the New York Yankees did not come to fruition. There was a guy named Derek Jeter that was a little bit better than I was. <laughs> uh, so, and that's okay. Uh, he had a great career and I was nothing remotely close to that. So yeah, I just had a, a, a great journey and just feel very, very fortunate. Uh, also to have parents who encouraged me to be a lifelong learner, um, just constantly learning. I loved school, loved the extracurricular, and uh, as we'll get into the story, I clearly grew to love entrepreneurship when I was bitten by the bug. That's awesome. One of the quotes I actually saw on your, on your profile, LinkedIn profile, is uh, in basketball, you can't coach height. And in business and life, you can't coach passion. So I'm wondering, uh, Romney, were you always passionate about entrepreneurship growing up? Or how did that kind of come, come to fruition for you? Not really. I do recall when I was 10, I was rummaging through a closet looking for something in my house came across a box of, uh, Haribo gummy bears back when you couldn't buy them in the States. My dad had bought them and just brought them to our family when he came home after a trip. And, uh, I looked at my friend and I said, I think we can make some money. And so we actually, it was little individual packets, box of those, like you would buy at Costco today. So we went door to door and sold those. And, uh, I felt a little bit guilty because I didn't purchase the inventory. My dad brought it as a gift for my family. So 
I don't recall exactly what I did with the cash if I split the earnings, but I was 10 or 11. And so I, I learned that you can just get up and go and you can generate uh, revenue. But really, for me, the entrepreneurial bug, I was bitten by that bug when I was in college. I did a, after my freshman year of college, I actually took two years off to serve a, a, a volunteer mission for my church. And I had the opportunity to go to uh, Switzerland and France. So just a phenomenal opportunity. I felt really fortunate. And while I was there, I learned the, I discovered that when something is very meaningful to you, a cause, uh, whether it's a belief or um, an organization or a product, that if you really believe in it, you can do great things, even in the face of adversity with limited resources. So that taught me a lot about myself. And I later was able to translate that into uh, life as an entrepreneur when I was in college. Crazy story. I came home from that experience uh, in Switzerland. And I helped my mom do some weeding out in our garden. And I took my shirt off and I didn't put sunblock on. And I was brutally sunburned. It was just a stupid move on my part. Just total oversight. And it it was July, hot summer and uh, got really burned. And my dad had a client who had a product that actually treated burns. And they were focusing on the, um, the medical supply first aid industry with this, this, it was a gel that treated burns. And I saw it in our kitchen and I thought, I'm desperate. I'll do anything that this burn hurts so badly. So I, I put on my back and had my mom spread it on my, on my shoulders. And no joke, within 20 minutes, I was not only scratching it with no pain, but I was moving back and forth on the, on the carpet, on the floor with no pain. And it blew my mind. So my dad said, what's this product? I don't think it's snake oil because it works, <laughs> but uh, I need to meet the founder and I think I need to sell it. So long story short, uh, my brother and I went and started negotiating the rights for the retail channel of that product. And it was not snake oil. It worked. Um, it was a it was a an underfunded venture on their side, and I didn't know anything. I was 21 years old. I took actually a semester off of school, went to Hawaii, and we peddled that thing door to door from retailer to retailer, realizing you don't go to corporate. You go. We were going to each individual store, convenience stores, you name it, hotel, gift shops. We went there. We were clueless. Um, ultimately, I believe we proved the opportunity, but could not convince the founder or the owner of the company that we were their guys to uh, take it into the retail channel. I don't blame him in hindsight, <laughs> but that really got me thinking about, wow, if you, if there's a product that you really believe in that provides tremendous value to consumers, one, they'll pay for it. And two, you can build something that's pretty significant as a business. And that started this, this fire started to burn within that, that that's what I want to do. So that was pretty cool. And then shortly after that, I started, um, I learned about another business, opportunity while I was in Hawaii and I ended up partnering with a cousin of mine on another venture. Um, I worked on that on the side during, during college. And, um, yeah, so it just became this labor of love. It was awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. I love how you say that if the product is satisfying consumer demand and or consumer interest and really providing value, essentially, um, you can scale it to a pretty substantial size. Which segues perfectly into Enso Rings. Um, you guys were recently in Inc. Was it Inc. Five Thousand? Yeah, uh huh. Inc. Five Thousand, and also uh, Utah's 
I guess, fastest growing businesses um, as well. Um, but before we kind of jump into that, perhaps give us a little context of uh, what Enso Rings are and what, uh, uh, what to do. I'd be happy to. Um, so Enso Rings, as I tell the story, I want to be very mindful that I'm not a co-founder. I was hired um, two years into the journey of the two founders. I was hired to lead the company as CEO. So I just feel just so lucky and I have the stewardship to help carry that with them and, and this amazing team that we've built. But like most great brands and companies, it starts one with the founding story and two with a, a why, a mission. And it's funny because when the founder actually told me about what he was doing as a Kickstarter campaign, I thought it was a stupid idea and I totally dismissed it. And I trusted him. His name is Brighton Jones. We did a startup years ago, over 15 years ago. And the company, uh, the business actually failed. And we learned a lot through that process. It was a lot of expensive learnings. But we stayed close as a result because in the trenches, we really got to trust each other's uh, integrity and, and, and respect each other's passion for entrepreneurship. So we stayed in touch. He took me to lunch. He said, Ron, I've got the story for you. I was, I was rock climbing and we're outside of Salt Lake City in Utah. There are mountains everywhere around us and people love to play in those mountains. And he was rock climbing. And he said, I reached up for a rock and my hand slipped and my ring, my wedding band caught on another rock and started to pull. And he said, for a split second, I thought it was actually going to literally tear my finger off. The pressure was so acute. And he said, luckily the rock gave way, but I went home and I, I looked at my wife and I said, I love you, but I'm not wearing this. You didn't give me a ring. You gave me a finger amputation device. <laughs> and, this, and he was, so it's left him really unsettled. And he said, I, I can't wear this. And she said, well, I expect you to show commitment. We're married, so figure something out that's an alternative. So he looked at um, all sorts of alternatives, literally from rope rings to wood, ceramic, tungsten, you name it. What he wanted was he wanted safety, he wanted comfort, he wanted affordability in case he lost it. Uh, but most importantly, show commitment to his wife by wearing the ring. And he was at lunch one day with a childhood friend of his named Aaron Daly. And Aaron noticed the ring he was wearing, and I think it was made out of wood or bamboo, and asked him about it. A conversation ensued. And Aaron said, well, I don't have a safety concern with my ring. It's a comfort issue. I think I've lost more rings than the years I've been married to my wife because I hate wearing metal. It's uncomfortable. I type a lot when I work on my computer, so I take it off. And next thing you know, it's gone. And that's not a good thing for our marriage. And maybe we should, anyway, they, they started talking about maybe we should look at alternatives just as a consumer, not as an entrepreneur. Come full circle, did some research, didn't like what the other products were out there that were trying to solve this solution through silicone, but they like the medium of silicone. It's soft, it's flexible. Um, if it catches on anything, it will tear off. So there's a safety component, but really comfortable. Uh, so they decided to do a Kickstarter campaign and that was December of 2015. They launched it and they raised 17,000 us dollars. So it's really small raise, but that got them off to the races and they were going. And he told me the story. And again, I thought it was just, my wife gave me one gold ring. I don't take it off. I don't rock climb. I use it when I lift weights. I'm good. And, uh, I dismissed it. He circled back with me a year later, or excuse me, let me think about this. Yeah, it was a year later. And he said, hey, let's go to lunch. I want to catch you up. Remember that little ring company I told you about? It's called Enso Rings. And 
it's actually going. And Aaron quit his day job and we've got a handful of people working for us. And I'm about to quit my day job. And it was crazy because as I, so one of the things I've learned as an entrepreneur is a lot of people give the advice to trust your gut. I would suggest that yes, but trust, but verify because I was completely wrong. My gut was that stupid. There's not a, there's not an industry there. Um, and their gut proved to be true. Thank goodness. And I said, so who's, who, who's buying this ring? He said, you know, it's crazy because we're just two dudes with an active lifestyle. We wanted a masculine rugged looking ring. And so that's our, we thought was our core buyer persona. Well, it turns out that we're actually building a, a, a premium brand in this category. That's more of a fashion brand because we cracked this nut where we figured out how to infuse precious metals into a ring. And so it has the luster and sheen of metal. So I'm going to show you actually here. So this is a, it's a silicone ring. It's an Enso ring and it's infused with, uh, with platinum. So we figured out to infuse precious gems, minerals, um, precious metals. So it has all the benefits of silicone. It's very soft. I don't even feel it's on. It's so thin, has breathing chambers. So it doesn't sweat. It's very comfortable, but again, it has that luster and sheen of metal. And in the, for a female consumer, we figured out how to infuse. So this is rose gold. This is actually infused with diamonds, crushed diamonds. We have a mother of pearl. So you can see pretty quickly that it's, it's quite different than a typical diamond ring. One thing I want to note, we're not anti-diamond. We're, we understand that this is actually complementary for a lot of people to the more traditional ring that they have. But this is about safety, peace of mind when they travel or when they work out, they don't want to hurt their finger or damage the ring or have it stolen or lost. A lot of people with working hands, think about it, it's a huge addressable market, right? Ever from first responders to military, to construction, plumbing, electricians, mechanics, you name it, they should not, for safety reasons, wear a ring, you know, for fear that it gets caught on something. And then you have uh, people in the, in the medical community, doctors, nurses, and because Enso has built this premium brand, unlike other brands that, that are, they've built brands and have products that appeal to a more, it's a more masculine look and feel, more rugged outdoor chalky hands type uh, buyer persona. We appeal to that customer, but we appeal to much broader. Uh, the majority of our customers are actually women. They, she buys for herself and for her husband or her partner. She also buys for her kids. We have stackable rings that are really you know, playful and more about mixing and matching with outfits. So we've, we've done some really cool things. So longer answer than you wanted, but it's been a, it's been a tremendous journey. So we're five years into it. And uh, believe it or not, we've sold over uh, 1.5 million silicone rings in 110 countries. Oh, wow. In about four and a half years. Yeah. 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 No, my, my fiance is a nurse actually, and she loves the, the halo, the halo ring. Um, and like you're saying, um, you don't get like bodily fluids, blood, kind of all that stuff yeah. you deal with as a nurse. So having an alternative to a traditional ring is definitely something that uh, is super valuable. <laughs> and if you think about at a time like COVID, you think about how much, how many people have evolved their lifestyle to be even more, um, I wouldn't say on the go because we're not traveling, uh, unfortunately, yet. But just this active lifestyle of exercise, people doing uh, yoga, running, biking, skateboarding, kayaking, whatever they're doing, they're finding that the Enso ring is just so comfortable. A lot of people have taken off their diamond or their traditional metal ring, and they're actually just keeping their Enso ring on all the time. Um, so it's been, it's been fascinating as people have more of an active lifestyle. It's, uh, it's, really, it's really taking flight. 
which is, it's been awesome. And if you don't mind indulging me, I want to say that um, I mentioned that every great brand starts with a story and a why. The why behind Enso is actually our mission. So the mission is to be a force for good. And how do we actually make that happen? Um, and that is we have a program called Rings for a Reason. So we donate a portion of every sale to charity. And it's really meaningful for us. It's enabled us to, one, have this absolute catalyst for everything that we do. It drives us. It's a, it's a thrust and creates this momentum, carries us forward. We lock arms around that mission as a company. We've been able to recruit, retain, I would suggest, top flight, even world-class talent in many cases, because so many people in their careers have been lacking for something that has true meaning around it. And so that's been huge for us. Um, we, we actually track a metric as a company. We have uh, three primary metrics that we, the whole company uh, rallies around. And the first is a revenue number for the year. The second is uh, net income or EBITDA. Profitabilities are important to us because we're intentionally not uh, venture-backed. We're, we're, uh, we've been self-funded uh, with non-institutional at least. And then uh, the third is those two become drivers the revenue and the income are drivers for rings for reason. So we, we, we look at the, the total combined dollar value of cash donations, uh, employee time that's donated through volunteer efforts. We do a lot of that. And then in-kind donations, we donate a lot of rings as well. So it's just made it really meaningful and, uh, and I love it. And it's actually why I joined in. So I was advising them um, on the side. And then when they went on Shark Tank and came back and said, we think it's about to take off, we need a CEO that was a clincher, the chance to be part of something that's really giving back. Absolutely. I love what you guys are doing. Absolutely. Um, but one thing I want to quickly touch on, you mentioned advising, um, I guess, startups or even companies. Uh, I know on the, uh, you're also the founder of Entrepreneur, Entrepreneur Launch Group. Um, so I'm just curious, what, I guess, what are some of the challenges uh, of launching a new brand or a new company? Because we have lots of entrepreneurs yeah. or aspiring entrepreneurs listening. Yeah. And I absolutely love, um, I've been on the receiving end of some trip of some great, uh, mentoring. I'm, I'm extremely appreciative of that. So I love to pay it forward. I love to mentor and, and coach. And I certainly don't have all the answers, but I have a little bit of wisdom for my pain. Um, so some of the challenges of entrepreneurship, there are several. You could, you know, the, the typical ones people think of is, well, limited resources, whether it's I'm baking on the side and so I have limited time or limited capital or, or resource to actually develop something. If it's software to maybe I'm not a, if I'm a non-technical founder and it's a software company, I need to find a developer, obviously. So um, there are a lot of challenges there, but, but what I wish I had known early in my career that I would always mention to people uh, when they're embarking on this journey is that entrepreneurship is not just an art. It's not this, Hey, I'm going to wing it and outwork everybody and just figure it out as I go, that there actually is a science component to it. So it's this, it's this combination of art and science. And I didn't realize that until probably eight years ago, a friend of mine uh, was at Stanford studying his, his PhD uh, under Steve blank. And they were studying um, you know, product market fit, customer development. Eric Reese uh, published his book, Lean Startup, which I love and I definitely recommend. And it's this, this realization that you can actually apply the scientific method to a startup, meaning you start with hypothesis. 
I think customers want this because I do. But don't assume that you have the exact solution fully baked and formulated in your mind and you know what to give them. So develop an MVP, a minimum viable product. It, it may not impress your mom, but it's good enough to get people using it. And you get feedback and you understand how they're using it, what they like, what they don't like, will they pay for it, and, and so forth. So you build it, you test it, you measure, and you learn. And then you repeat the cycle and you iterate and get better every time. And you know, I listened to a podcast a long time ago with, uh, by Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, just obviously a very smart guy. Um, I love his podcast masters of scale, by the way. And he said, you know, I compare a startup to jumping off a cliff and building the plane as fast as you can before you hit the ground. And I think he does that part jokingly, right? Because there's a lot more to it, but that panic and urgency does need to be there, but you don't have to swing it. You can, before you invest a ton of money and time, take it through this scientific method uh, to test it, you know, build, test, measure, learn with an MVP. And you can make your life way less painful uh, in that process. And you learn, learn as you go. And the second thing is don't start company building before you have a product that you know has product market fit where customers actually want it and they'll pay for it. So a lot of founders give themselves that there are three founders and I'm the CEO, he's the CMO and he's the chief whatever brand officer, like, don't worry about that. You know, the book Lean Startup talks about the dollhouse fallacy, which is this misunderstanding that I was guilty of early in my career that a startup is, it's this misinterpretation that a startup is just a small version of a bigger company. It's not. Startup is to try to figure out, will people buy your product? What are they like? What will they pay before you start building anything else? Absolutely. And one of the things that always seems to come up when I interview other entrepreneurs is resilience. Um, you mentioned yeah. that uh, 15 or so years ago that your first, uh, I guess, startup failed. Um, how, how did you manage to bounce back? And do you think resilience is something that you learn or is it something that is just part of your DNA? Yeah, it certainly helps as part of your DNA. Uh, sometimes it can be pounded into us and it can become, I believe, a, a learned trait or behavior. Uh, I do think for me, just being just grit and hustle, it, it did start for me at a young age. I was really small. Like my physical build was really small. I was, I was one of the shortest kids, uh, didn't have, definitely didn't have a lot of muscle, but I was super competitive and I wanted to be really good at sports. And I played, I played, uh, baseball was my, my main love, as I mentioned, and then also played basketball but I was the freshman in high school who was five foot two. I'm now six one, <laughs> but I was five wow. foot two and I was this little guy. And it, I realized I have to outwork other people because not only was I shorter, I definitely was not better. I was not, it's not a great player. So that hustle and grit and determination was, uh, was really, really important. And that for a, uh, for an entrepreneur is absolutely probably, I would say, yeah, hustle and grit. Those attributes are absolutely key. Without them, you'll give up. You'll give up and you'll find a million excuses and you'll be the guy or the, the woman that down the road sees someone hit a home run and then says, well, I had that idea. I could have done that. Really? <laughs> Why didn't you? <laughs> absolutely. But let's say if you have to boil down 
one, I guess all of those into one superpower or unique skill that you have, what would you say that would be, Romney? I actually would say that it is, it is grit. grit. I would. Um, it, it has, it's given me the strength and the fortitude and the drive to continue to, um, to persevere in really difficult times. You know, when I talk with founders, I, I've learned that you need to have some really hard discussions up front because those early days of an idea and this absolute exhilaration of we're going to change the world or we're going to be David versus Goliath and take them down, or we're going to make a ton of money together. That is really easy. The high fives, the hugs, the chest bumps, whatever. That's really easy. And those are exciting conversations. But what happens when things, not if, but when things get difficult, because they always do. And that's part of the, the, the beauty and what's so amazing and rewarding about entrepreneurship is getting through those difficult times. And there are a host of things that can make, that can you know, cause those challenges. And a lot of them are exogenous that or you know, they, they come, they're beyond our control and they just hit you and blindside you. So having that grit is really, really important. And I would, I would also say that, so what's, what's the underlying foundation of grit? A lot of times it's being driven by a why, you know, W H Y what is truly driving you as an entrepreneur and you hear it a lot. And I used to dismiss it, but I agree when people say money and wealth can't be the primary driver, it certainly needs to be a motivator in my opinion, especially when you realize the reality that if anybody is dependent on you for generating income, if you have a spouse or kids or any loved one, you need to be responsible and they don't sign up for the sacrifices that you make as an entrepreneur. So your why, in my opinion, better be tied to that greater cause um, that, uh, that, that should drive you. Absolutely. One, one thing you mentioned was challenges, unforeseen challenges. And obviously yeah. a lot of people are um, seeing lots of challenges the last six, seven months, obviously with the pandemic. Uh, but for you personally, Rami, have you, I guess, have you seen any challenges on your end or how, how has things been for you the last six, seven months? On a personal level? Yeah. Yeah. So my, well, while we're talking about entrepreneurship, I, I believe that at the core of who I am is my most important role in my life is that of a father. So my wife and I have four kids and we've worked really hard to make them a priority where as an entrepreneur, you work really, really long hours. You have to, and you can't wait around for luck or good fortune to strike. You've got to just out hustle and that work and be really, really scrappy. But we made sure early in our marriage, we, we made a commitment to each other that our family would come first. And so I'm hopeful that we help provide our kids with a foundation of uh, values and work ethic and perspective to help them be successful. But as I look at how people struggle in the world right now during COVID and, and just so many in the, the macro economy and so many different struggles are in the world, a lot of sadness with social injustice and, and um, unemployment. When I look at my kids, 
were there in their lives, especially those who are, you know, one's 21, one's 19. And then I have two, two other teenagers seeing them go through struggles and realizing that, well, I'm a fixer and I believe I have a playbook that worked well for me in my life. I can't force my playbook on my kids. And so that's been the biggest um, challenge that I've, I've faced on a personal level is, um, is as a dad is watching my kids. And in many time, many instances, I've seen them triumph, get through really hard times, but watching them uh, on their own have to learn things, uh, you know, the hard way is, is really difficult. Yeah. It's almost, you have to bite your tongue and just let them kind of do what they're going to do and just be there for them when things kind of <laughs> don't go all the way, ideally. And Joe, I realized that that answer might make me sound like a, the really old man in your series <laughs> of podcasts, but at the risk of sounding like an even older man than I am is I would strongly recommend to any exist current entrepreneurs or spying entrepreneurs to make sure, uh, that they, if they haven't done so yet to decide what their true priorities really are in their life. And if they've made commitments to other people, whether it's a life partner, a spouse, kids, that they really look themselves in the, you know, in the face and make sure that they're fully committed there and don't sacrifice that priority. Um, because that is where the, in my opinion, where, from my experience, where the greatest fulfillment comes, um, most happiness, most fun. Yes. Some of the hardest times, but when, you know, when you look back, uh, a family is a startup too. I'm not saying everybody has to get married and live the life that I, that I've chosen to live, but whatever your, your uh, convictions and commitments are, don't let your journey of entrepreneurship, um, cause those to be thrown to the wayside or forgotten. Cause there are a lot of, a lot of people who neglect the other priorities in their life, all in the name of being a wild and crazy, hardcore committed entrepreneur and look back with a ton of regrets. Um, and by the way, there's a book by Clayton Christensen, how we measure your life that talks about that, which is, uh, I think very profound. And he actually was a mentor to me when I was a freshman in college back in Boston, I had an opportunity to interact with him on different occasions. And he, he later became known as, you know, the guy who coined the phrase disruptive technology and disruption. And wrote numerous best-selling books, the New York times list, but anyway, sorry, you didn't ask me that question, but I felt I need to share that is, is what are your foundational building blocks as a, as a person and hold to those and don't let the storms and opportunities of entrepreneurship uh, derail you. Absolutely. I love that Romney. And yeah, it's a common Sorry if that's preachy, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. No, it's, it's really some great insight because I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs as well and some peers and, Work-life balance is something that always comes up, and do I just hustle, hustle, hustle? Or, um, but I guess for you, how, what advice would you give to an entrepreneur trying to have that balance, like you said, with work-life balance? Is it just as easy as putting your phone away and just not touching it at six o'clock, or how does that how does that work for you? So I don't mean this in a negative way, but I'm not sure that work-life balance is a realistic concept. Uh, I think it was Jeff Bezos who talked about where I first heard the, the idea of work-life harmony, that it's all interrelated, intertwined, and it just works it together. There are different times in our life, different seasons of life where some are long, some are short, where we need to give uh, an inordinate amount of time or focus to one of those. And 
that's okay because it's for a season. And maybe you are in this incredibly difficult, challenging journey as an entrepreneur, and that's where focus needs to be for a few months. But you have a conversation with your other commitments in your life, whether it's family or otherwise, where they understand that your heart is with them, but I really need to crank here. Um, sometimes there are family challenges. I've had experiences where my wife and I needed to double down on really making sure that our kids are okay, especially during those challenging teen years. And I had hard conversations with my team, which is guys, you're not going to see me as much. And I may feel like my heart is not entirely in it. It is, but where I'm needed right now is, is with my family. And, um, and we had that conversation. So they, they knew what my, um, where my priorities were and that I was still a core, uh, you know, partner with them. So, uh, work-life harmony is really what, what I would, uh, suggest as a more realistic, uh, aspiration for me. I, I did early in my career determine there are going to be some non-negotiables. Um, this is for me, I'm not preaching it, but it's worked well for me. Um, I worked really hard during the week, Monday through Friday. And my wife has been amazingly understanding. But the non-negotiable is on Sundays, I don't work on my business or my startup. Um, it's a day where I devote to my family. Um, I'm really involved in my church community. My faith is important to me. And I, I want to look outside myself and actually be in, a, in service mode where I'm helping people. And that goes throughout the week as well, mostly you know, on, on the evenings. So that Sunday is really important. And my teams have always known that um, you're not going to hear from me on Sundays. It's... Uh, but if you work on Sundays, great. Awesome. If I need to work a Saturday, I'll work a Saturday. No problem. The other is the importance of, uh, of dinner time is I had a mentor who talked about uh, reclaiming the dinner table. And this might sound really preachy and I might sound really old fashioned, <laughs> but I appreciate it as a young father at that point and an entrepreneur, let's reclaim the dinner table because even if it's only 25, 30, 45 minutes, that time with whoever your family is, that time is almost sacred where you can have conversations that are real and raw. At the very least, those who are in my life know that I'm committed to them. And then they have no issue if after dinner I help clean up and then I'm back on my laptop. They never have any problem with that. And it's common if my kids are doing homework, they're on their laptops, I'm next to them on my laptop. And it's kind of cool. And my wife, she's writing a book right now. She's really involved with a lot of different things. And, uh, it's pretty common that in the evenings we all have our laptop and we're, we're in work mode, but we've had that time together at the dinner table, which is really important. And we have conversations. We talk about kind of like the, what's the weather report, high point, low point for the day. And you can learn a lot about people in your life who you care for when you ask questions like that. And it might be a little bit cheesy, but it's, it's been good for us. I love that. That's maybe something I have to steal as well. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I just want to quickly pivot back into um, more of the business side of things. Um, earlier, you mentioned when building your startup, finding that product market fit. Um, but what other elements, like let's say you get the product market fit. Let's say, what other elements would you say um, a great brand has? Yeah, highly overused adjective or word, so I apologize, but authenticity is still extremely important. So understanding, once you understand who are the customers who, are, who want your product or your service, what are the jobs that it helps that they're hiring it for, right? And so in the case of a, an Enso Ring, and this came from Clayton Christensen also, another book recommendation, Competing Against Luck, amazing. 
what are the jobs that your customers are hiring your product to do? So don't try to be something that you're not. Don't. Too many brands, for example, I believe, too many brands try to be Nike or they try to be Apple. No other brands are Nike or Apple. And use that as to your advantage. Absolutely use that to your advantage. But make sure that when you're telling stories and whether it's an Instagram post or it's an email to your customer base or it's a press release, whatever it is, that you are conveying a message about your brand that has real meaning and depth to it that makes you unique. And so I can't tell any brand how they should be unique because that's up to them to figure it out. But I think that's very, very important. The importance of uh, consistency in your messaging is obviously, that's a high priority. And then look and feel, obviously. So the, you know, the graphical components of, uh, of a brand are really important. Make sure it's clean, looks professional. Uh, again, understand your audience and don't try to be all things to all people. Yeah, really find your niche. Um, yeah, yeah you, you've, you've talked to many entrepreneurs, many brands actually. Um, but what's maybe one, one question that you never get asked that you wish would be asked? I would say it comes back to my family and that is who has made my journey possible. And it's my wife for sure. Uh, we had been married for two months. I had just graduated from, from undergrad from college. I was uh, working on at a day job to pay some bills. And I was working on a startup on the side. And I came home from work after two months, we've been married. And my wife sat me down and said, Romney, I think you need to quit your job. That's what you're talking about. And she said, let's face it. When you're working on your startup, you're way happier. You have way more energy. And to be totally honest, you're way more fun to be around. <laughs> and when you come home from a job that you clearly hate, but you're willing to do it because you're, you know, you're a responsible guy and you want to provide income. And at the time we were living in a, a condo complex and my wife was the property manager. So we had free rent and a small stipend. And she said, I've done the math. And if we keep our expenses low, I am pretty sure we can make ends meet and you can do your startup. And I said, Oh wait, you're dead serious. And she said, dead serious. Like how soon? She said, tomorrow, give your two weeks. So I did, I went and gave my two weeks notice. And, uh, and that was what launched me as an entrepreneur. And I use that story one, cause I'm, I'm so incredibly grateful for her. And all along the way, she's been a way better partner than I ever could have imagined in my life, which has enabled to me enabled me to to pursue this crazy addiction of entrepreneurship. But I also mention it, Joe, because it's really important that as entrepreneurs embark on their journey, that if they do have a partner, that that partner they've had those hard conversations about. Are you ready for this? What do sacrifices look like and what could they be? Because a partner or a family doesn't, as I said, they don't sign up for the sacrifices all the time. And some entrepreneurs take their loved ones over the edge of the cliff and crash. And it's really scary and really sad. So making sure that you're aligned on that and you have frequent conversations about risk tolerance levels because most entrepreneurs learn the hard way as I learned the very hard way that 
things tend to take twice as long than you anticipate and twice as much money, if not more. Uh, so that's really important part is making sure that if you are in a relationship, especially if it's a lifelong commitment, that you are totally locked arms in that. It's not for the faint of heart. It's not, yeah, definitely not for the faint of heart. And yeah, it's really who you surround yourself with. Um, it's really having that foundation to support you and I guess support them as well as you go through this crazy, crazy journey we call entrepreneurship. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Romney. I only have a couple more questions here for you. Um, I just wanted to get kind of tactical right now, but what's, what's maybe a business or marketing trend that you see that you're really excited about right now? Yeah, definitely a, a, a trend that I actually believe is here to stay. And it's, it's um, at its core is solid. And that is how many brands are pursuing social impact. So a give back program, a cause, a mission, a philanthropy, a charity to which they donate. And you even see, you know, with, with B Corps, companies from the outset saying, we are about doing good. And there are a lot of companies that have uh, done really well by doing good. And I, I applaud that. Uh, and so Rings is not a B Corp, but we are mission driven. And I would strongly recommend for any brand out there, entrepreneur, that if they haven't defined their why and what's the what's their cause and their mission to do that, you know, but to do it with, with real purpose, you got to be committed to it. You can't say we donate a portion of every sale to charity and then not make donations and, uh, and don't do it to pound your chest and make people think that you're, um, you know, you're, you're self aggrandizing or, or self promoting. It needs to be very genuine, but I, I absolutely, absolutely love that. Absolutely. What's, uh, what's Romney's personal why? <laughs> so I have a why that's very personal as it relates to how I interact with, um, with people. And my why is to, uh, help people discover and, uh, go after their potential, uh, as individuals, because I believe that there's greatness within each of us. I really do. And it's incredibly gratifying and fulfilling for someone to get a glimpse of their potential and then go after it. And I've been really lucky to have people along the way and opportunities that have helped me pursue my potential. And there are others that have as well, but, but there are a lot of people in the world that haven't been given even that vision shared with them, that there's greatness in you. Let's help you find it and go after it. And you can build something that's significant. It's not about wealth. It's about finding your potential and going after it. And so I hope that I can be an instrument and a coach along the way for people uh, in their journey and, uh, and help them lift themselves up into a, a better circumstance. Absolutely. I think I got some goosebumps going. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's awesome. Robbie. Again, I'm just trying to pay it forward. I've been so <laughs> fortunate. I've been really, a lot of people have helped me out. Got to pay it forward, man. Got to pay it forward. I love that. Where can our listeners connect with you online if you have more questions? Uh, so LinkedIn, definitely my favorite, uh, social platform. So I'm on there, Romney Williams, uh, on LinkedIn and love to connect with anybody. Cool. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast, Romney. Uh, Thanks, I love, I love to end the podcast with asking the guests, uh, a word or a phrase to describe their brand since it's the marketing branding podcast. Um, so my last question to you, Romney is what's maybe one word or phrase to describe Romney, Romney's Romney Williams brand. 
Yeah. So I will emphasize that this is not something I have achieved, but I'm striving to achieve. And that is, uh, I'm, I'm borrowing from a VC who I met in Boulder, Colorado, um, who talked about the four H's and he talked about when you look for talent on a team, look for the four H's humble, hungry, happy, and honest. And, and borrowing from that, his name is Bill Perry, by the way, must give him credit, but borrowing from that, I've added one more H and that is helpful. So I strive to live the five H's of being humble, hungry, happy, honest, and helpful. This episode of the CMO and Joe podcast has ended, but be sure to subscribe for more business strategies and tactics to help you create the profitable and successful business you've always dreamed of. And don't forget to rate and review so we can continue to bring you the best content. See you on the next episode.